Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, my guest today is Fernanda Piri, professor of the Anthropology of Law at the University of Oxford. A specialist in Tibetan anthropology, she is author most recently of The Rule of Laws, a 4,000-year-old quest to order the world, which is the subject of our conversation today. Fernanda Piri, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much. So this is, um, it, it's an audacious topic. Um, let me begin with a quote from you. And this is somewhere in the middle of the book. Uh, but I think this is sort of the argument of the book. So let me try this and see if, I'm, if, I, if I manage to pull this out of the lucky dip. In the modern world, the rule of law has become an ideal to rival the religious and cosmological visions of the ancient legal systems. Um, is that right? Is that sort of your argument? Is that, and, and what do you mean by it? Just for the, for the new listener, someone new to this. Sure. Well, I mean, yes, that's an interesting one to pick up on. I'm, I'm interested you found just in the middle of the book, but, um, but yes, it was, it was earlier of, too. <laughs> it, it is, I'd say one of the major arguments, um, that laws and legal systems have always been more than tools of government. So governments and power holders have often, of course, used them, and they do in the modern world, to manage populations, to control, to create order, and so on. But historically, behind those sorts of pragmatic purposes, there's always been something something more, some sort of justification, some sort of sense of a higher order that makes it right for the people in power, uh, the governments, to use their power to enforce their laws, a justification. Um, so... You know, many legal ancient ancient legal systems use religion. Think of the Hindu world and the and the you know, Jewish um, and Islamic worlds. Law represented God's path for the world or God's commands. That's what sort of justified that exercise of power. Um, and in Hindu India, there was a sense of sort of cosmological order. Uh, the the notion of dharma, that really complicated notion, and the law sort of set out how everyone ought to behave in accordance with their dharma. So these are sorts of visions which justify the, the, the making use of laws. But of course, in the modern world, most states don't use religion um, as a justification for, their, for the exercise of power. And I think that the idea of the rule of law is one of those things that sort of come to replace those religious and cosmological visions. But it's out there. It's held up by the, U, the United Nations as one of the big things that all states have got to do. They've got to have democracy. They've got to respect human rights. And they've got to have the rule of law. It's a sort of um, a justification in itself of, um, for 
exercising power and enforcing laws on their populations. So I, I mean, what I'm taking from this is that from for a very long time, um, there's been a sacrality, a sacrality to the law. And there are, in fact, I mean, and as an anthropologist, you know this better than anyone else, there are an amazing number of when you see people just doing jury duty, there are a number of, of things which we can represent, re- recognize, not as practical, but as sacral practices. Um, there is, um, I've often thought the recusing of the jury in the American system is, uh, has a sort of sacrality to it. The priests are set apart and then they're brought back in. They must not be contaminated. There's something Levitical about that. Um, even as many commentators have observed in the American system, we have you know nine robed justices on high on a bench in a temple, ruling on the state of law and religion. There's there's something inevitably sacral about even the procedures of how we do law. I mean, wig, wigs. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Exactly, and you just got to look at court architecture as well. It's often temple-like in its yeah. in its appearance, and I, yeah, I think the idea of sacrality is 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 a good one. The, the idea that the law is set apart, and that what people are doing is somehow representing or enacting a higher order, just a, an order of justice. Um, they are they are trying to enact and pursue what's what's right for the world. And it's surely very interesting that in Mesopotamia, people are making, are doing astronomical observations and, you know, chalking or engraving diagrams of the motions of the stars and planets on top of the ziggurats at the same time as they're codifying law. It's a, it's a fascinating conjunction of cosmology and the legal system, which we'll get, we'll get back to continually in the source of the conversation. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the earliest complete or almost complete code of laws we have created by Hammurabi in about 1700 BC, which is which is still there in the Louvre Museum in Paris. You know, and this 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 tall black granite stone covered with cuneiform writing, about 280 laws. And at the top, this this very powerful image of Hammurabi, you know, the powerful warlord standing in front of Shamash, God of the Sun, sort of receiving authority to make his laws. You know, it's there right at the beginning. And and we've so we've split it, and I guess the question we'll get to at the end of it is: Can the rule of law replace cosmology? Which I think is a little bit like saying: Can I climb a ladder by lifting myself up by my bottom of my shoes? I mean, I I don't think it can. But we we've put we we put an increasing weight upon the rule of law, which I'm not sure it's equipped to bear. But we'll get to that. Well, yeah. Okay. So, how did you? I, I, I also want to ask you towards the end how you got your head around made, made these comparisons, um, and it's a, a lifetime of practice, I guess, is one answer. But let's look at um, three sort of strands and sort of directions of the law: Indian, Chinese, Mesopotamian. Um, what do you? You've already mentioned the, the sort of the Indian contribution, the, uh, the Brahmin contribution of Dharma. Could you uh, outline that a little bit more? Well, sure. So um, legal systems have been very, many, very varied, and they've risen in sort of all parts of the world. But it seemed to me when I was exploring the sort of roots of law that 
almost all of them can be traced back to one of those three sort of original um, um, original moments um, in China, India, and Mesopotamia, where they where laws seem to have um, been thought up, sort of as if as if from nothing. Um, and in India, it was the project of the priests of the Brahmins. Um, so there was already a system whereby the kings looked to the priests to to keep them safe, to perform rituals, to look after them in warfare, and and so on. So there was already already sort of division of labour between kings and priests, which then ran through the whole of of, of Hindu Indian history. Um, and so the the priests were special ritual specialists. And um, wrote about the Vedas, you know, these ancient cosmological principles, and the, you know, the idea of Dharma, which tells us all how to behave um, in in accordance um, with this cosmological vision of the world. And at some stage, the the Brahmins, uh, this is in about the second century of the Common Era, started writing more explicitly legal texts. So it's part of this long ritual tradition. But what I mean by legal texts is they were the texts which had rules in about you know, how people ought to behave. And there were often rules for householders. You know, so the Brahmins um, were the recipients of most of the rules, and they, there were complicated provisions about how they ought to maintain their households and the stages of their life and what work they ought to do and how they ought to do it. And then a separate set of rules for the kings. Um, so here are the priests telling the kings how to behave. You know, so there's a real question of separation of powers here. And again, elaborate rules for how kings had to keep their courts and how they had to meet out justice. So there, it's sort of one remove were all the rules about how contracts could be enforced and marital disputes could be resolved and so on. And then there were other sets of rules, but much, much more limited for the ordinary people and the servant or slave class. You know, it was, it was this real hierarchical society, which is um, made very evident in their legal text. So how does this differ from so the Chinese example? Uh, are king, Chinese kings and then the emperor, are, is, there, is there a priestly, are, are, do, are priests involved in the writing and disposition of laws in China? No, absolutely not. And this is a big difference between the two. So um, ultimately, the emperors claimed to be the representatives of heaven themselves. They were the ones who are up there in the temples performing the really important cosmological rituals. Um, and so they were always the lawmakers themselves. So law was very top down in China. It's like a sort of pyramid with the with a ruler and then the emperor right at the top, telling everybody else how to behave. And the form of their laws was almost entirely punitive. It was crime, crimes and punishments. Almost everything was expressed in terms of crimes. It's a really sort of striking aspect of their laws. So even even the laws which essentially told people how to make contracts and deals with deal with land were all written in the form of crimes and punishment. It's a it's a crime not to do it this this way rather than that way. So it, so is it a it's really. Okay, so so and it's so is it a more is is a much more simple system then? I mean, or or, or uh, and as well as punitive. It was. It became pretty complicated pretty quickly. <laughs> the <Okay>. laws applied, <laughs> and there were complicated rules about about rituals, about court rituals, and so on. I would say the 
if you just looked at them side by side, gathered together all the all the texts we have, I would say the Chinese laws were far more numerous than the the Hindu laws, at least as far as we we know of. Um, but it was it was much more unified in a way, political and legal power unified, whereas in India they were separated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then finally, third is Mesopotamia, and we already talked about Hammurabi. Um, He's the he's receiving the laws from the sun god, but yet there is also a priest. There's also a there's seems to be a separation of powers there as well. Yes, the, I mean the, the priests don't really figure in Hammurabi's laws. They're a, they're a pretty secular uh-huh. set of laws themselves. So I think the sun god gives gives authority to the king to Hammurabi himself to make his laws. But then they're then they're sort of fairly pragmatic. Um, a set of laws. Uh, they're about, you know, they define crimes, they define what we would call torts, you know, they specify compensation for injuries, they talk about um, farming activities, uh, marriage problems, um, uh, use of and um, distribution of land and all that sort of thing. Yeah, so- Sorry. In some ways, they're much more familiar to us in the modern world because they take what we call this casuistic form. A lot yes. of them express in terms of if somebody does this, if somebody injures somebody and causes a sort of injury, then the consequence should be this much compensation. That sort of the if-then form is very familiar to us in the modern world. And what, the way I think you can describe it is that it's about enacting justice. You know, if injures somebody, this is the just response. Uh, if a case goes to court, this is how justice is to be enacted. If there's a family dispute, this is the just way of resolving it. What's um, interesting to me reading your book is that for, you know, for 20 years, we've been problematizing the idea of Mesopotamia as the root of Western, quote unquote, civilization. And yet when I look at it, I said, my goodness, of course, this is, you can see the similarity. You can see that that casuistry is such a, um, it's so pervasive in our culture to this day, you can't but then see us as inheriting something from Mesopotamia, like it or not. Well, in, indeed. Although, I mean, how much else goes with it is another matter. It's one thing to take the legal form, but you know, much else has changed between now and then. And, yeah, but it's what, a, it's an important mindset. It's an important way of it's an important way of seeing and thinking. It's yes, it's a way of thinking about justice and the relationship between law and justice, which we've very much inherited now. So how do how did the the, the the chains of evidence leading from Mesopotamia to other very different places are are fascinating? So how how does that happen? How does casuistry uh, pass on like a virus or a sort of computer program subroutine that other people pick up and, and employ? Well, there's a the very interesting questions. It's difficult to pin down now because things happened such a long time ago. One thing we do know is that the writers of the laws in the Book of Exodus were almost certainly inspired by Hammurabi's laws. So they were written probably around a thousand years apart. I mean, Exodus took its its current form somewhere around, you know, the, the first half or the middle of the first millennium BC, you know, a good millennium or so after the making of Hammurabi's laws. But some of the phrases in them, not, not least those um, well-known phrases, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, exactly the same in Hammurabi and in Exodus. So there was clearly an influence there. 
How did it come about? Was it people traveling, people from the lands of Israel and Jordan who were taken prisoner in Babylon, were inspired by the Babylonian laws, were educated there and sort of came back and applied some of their knowledge to um, write down the Israeli laws? Was it merchants traveling the other way? We don't really know, but I mean, we do know that ideas travel. Ideas and legal forms travel around the place and then they're reused in very different contexts. So the Indian Brahmins traveled throughout Southeast Asia and in, in ancient Burma, for example, which was a Buddhist land rather than a Hindu land, they adopted a lot of the forms of the Indian Dharma Shastra laws. So laws can travel easily. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, in some ways, maybe I'm naive, but I'm less surprised to find a sort of Semitic people on the end and the edge of the Fertile Crescent adopting casuistry. But I'm really surprised to find these barbarians on the other side of the Mediterranean, in on the <laughs> other side of the Aegean, adopting forms that look sort of Mesopotamian-ish. And it's really surprising to find people in central Italy, on the Italian peninsula, eventually also doing things which have a sort of simple connection to those precedents. Sure. And, the, and those links are um, much less certain. Um, but, but there are scholars who um, have made very plausible theories about the links, firstly with Athens, mm-hmm. um, looking at the form of the old Athenian laws as, as far as we know about them. And... Um, and, and seeing fairly obvious-looking connections between those and the Middle Eastern tradition, and if you if you look at the map, they're not that far apart. You know, so even in the first first millennium or so BC, there was lots of trade around that region. People crossing the Mediterranean on their ships, Phoenician traders. Mm-hmm. There are lots of routes by which cultural influences could have moved, and we know there were links between Athens and the beginnings of Rome. So those are all, all routes through which legal ideas could could have travelled. Well, I'm curious to pursue this uh, this idea of sacrality in the law. Um, how are priests involved in Athenian law or Roman law, or is there a division between this, this the sacred and the secular there? I mean, how does, how does it work there? Well, certainly in Rome, priests had some sort of influence on the on the law to begin with, um, but it diminished, and law developed into much more of a secular form in Rome. I mean, after all, the 12 tables were written in 459 BC, mm-hmm. um, and the Roman tradition didn't really reach its apogee with Justinian's Corpus Juris Civilis until the 6th century. That's, um, again, you know, a whole millennium later. So lots happened in the meantime. So what, um, if you could refresh our memories, what's, what's the, what are the 12 tables and, and why is that important? Well, the Twelve Tables was, as far as we know, the first sort of deliberate writing down of laws in Rome. Um, And um, almost certainly on a demand by a citizen's assembly. So this was the time of the conflict between the classes, what became the patricians, the nobility, the historic nobility, and the general mass of commoners. Um, and a lot's been written about it by later Roman historians and disentangling, you know, myth and historical reality is very different in this period. But it seems pretty certain that at some point in the 5th century BC, the citizens got together, created large assemblies and started making demands. 
Uh, it's probably about you know debt and poverty and the spoils of war. And one of the things they demanded was a set of laws which would set out in written form certain rights. Um, and some of it was about um, about being pursued for for debt. Some of it was about being condemned um, to the death penalty, which was subject to stringent sort of procedural requirements. And some of it was fairly more mundane things about sort of you know, family and commercial matters. But so, it seems like a bottom-up initiative, which is interesting. Compared it is to very much a top-down. Mm-hmm. So this this uh, segues very nicely into a continuing theme of your book. Well, first of all, is conflict is fantastic for legal development. Um, peaceful societies, maybe the legal development isn't so interesting, but you know uh, that doesn't last for long, uh, and conflict leads to legal development. We can see that again and again and again and again. Right? And second is this: as to quote you, ordinary people created laws to represent the contours of the social order they wished for themselves and their communities. So there's even in the twelve tables we see that sort of action coming up from below in which somehow people are pushing up rules upon those above them in the hierarchy, which is, Indeed. that's also conflict. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. But you're right to put to point to the contrast. You know, in China, as we were just saying, it's very much top down. It's all about the rulers disciplining their people, imposing order from the top. And then, you know, just a few centuries later, we have Romans demanding law from the bottom. Mm-hmm. So you, uh, the, the, the second part of your book is devoted to sort of examples of this more, this sort of, this ordinary people pushing up from the bottom. And a few examples, I guess, when we could look at China, where, where that doesn't happen or is unsuccessful. So you, you begin, I'm very curious, you begin that that uh, chapter, it's I think chapter seven, yes, with, with talking about fringes, Iceland, Ireland, uh, all the way to Armenia. Why, do, why did you begin with fringes? Well, having uh, having discussed the major legal systems of the world, which sort of set the scene, um, I just w- wanted to explore some of the ways in which people have made laws and ask, you know, why did they make them? Um, and why did they adopt this often very complicated form in very sort of remote um, places? So I thought, you know, Ireland and Iceland were fantastic examples. Here they are, absolutely on the fringes of Christianity, you know, beyond which is the sort of nothing more than sort of icebergs and glaciers um, and leaving pretty perilous lives um, on their islands. And yet at some stage, you know, in the year about the 8th century in, in terms of Ireland and, you know, about 100 years or so later in terms of Iceland, their scribes got hold of this technique of writing down laws and created these complicated documents from which we can we can understand a lot about their lives um, about their sort of social relations and matters of hierarchy and honor and status and the way they approach disputes. But the laws are way more complicated than anything they could have actually needed for resolving disputes. Um, so one of my favorite examples is, is, is a law about chasing swarms of bees in Ireland. So you can imagine these farmers, they keep bees and a swarm goes off onto their neighbor's land and they set off in hot pursuit and the neighbor comes out and says, oh, you know, this is my land, you know, I'll set my dogs on you, a dispute, sort of thing that might need, need to be resolved. Um, but you'd have thought the village community would be able to get together and and decide that you know, they would 
um, this was a reasonable activity or not. And there might be some simple rules about when you could legitimately chase bees on your neighbor's land. But one of these scribes got hold of this problem and <laughs> this fantastically complicated text in which he tried to draw analogies with mill streams that go over different people's land and complicated ideas about property. You know, the idea that anyone might use this text is just unthinkable. So here's law becoming sort of way more elaborate it's, than anything. Sounds like a law is. review article. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it, it is a kind of, when you think about it, it is a fascinating, it does re- reveal that that right of pursuit, uh, that right of chasing game um, in Virginia, colonial Virginia, one of the big problems was fencing off your place and uh, not allow, shooting hogs was a tremendous, mm-hmm. because there are no fences, except around crops. And so ch- shooting a hog, someone else's hog that comes on your land is a huge question. It's m- kind of the same question. I mean, whose property is it? Who benefits from from what? And and so on. Mm, yeah, yeah. And here with the scribes, you know, they saw the possibilities for sort of, yeah. you know, complex legal debate that comes out of these, uh, these very practical issues. So, so, how does this uh, differ from, say, when it, once again, as you say, somewhere at the end of the book, that China is always the exception? So this is the we're, we're you're looking we're looking now at a period, say, roughly 500, 1500 AD, um, and how is China the exception at this period? Well, China maintains its very centralized, unified legal system. So as we know, China's Chinese dynasties they come and they go. And there are periods of turmoil in between them. But each of the succession of major dynasties, from the Qin to the Han to the um, the Tang and the Song and the Ming, they all make these very elaborate centralized legal systems. And, you know, way back in the Tang dynasty, the sixth and ninth centuries, they, um, you know, from the court in eastern China, they're controlling what goes on in what is now Xinjiang, way out to the west. They're giving instructions to officials about how to carry out their, their duties. They're telling them to use um, standard forms of contract. The children are getting taught from the same textbooks in, in the schools. This sort of this sort of urge to centralization and uni- and making things uniform is apparent from this from this um, very early days and a very impressive bureaucratic apparatus which is sort of recreated by, by each dynasty. And laws are a very big part of this. It's a unifying force. So there's much less scope for um, individual communities to come together to create their own laws. Now, of course, in reality, most communities would have been doing something like that. There would be village meetings, the headmen with, with, with certain um, responsibilities, there'd be mediation of disputes. But sort of hovering over it all was this sort of edifice of the centralized law, which is extremely powerful. So can you see, um, so your object of special study is Tibet. So if we look at the fringes of, of the Chinese, the empire, do we see that sort of same bottom-up community, ordinary people creating laws to organize the contours of their social order? I mean, that, that must be happening despite this almost myth of a overarching centralized gruesome punishments utter absolute control i mean that's that it's true but there's as you just suggested there's a little there's more give and take and certainly we must see that at the peripheries the fringes Mm. 
Yes, I mean, these things, of course, haven't left many records. Yeah. You know, when people do things without writing, without creating written records. But you're an anthropologist. This is what you live for. You find that you can (laughs) can decipher these things from cultural something or the other. Well, of course, I've done lots of fieldwork in Tibet. Now, you know, part of the whole sort of Chinese Chinese nation. And... um, it's evident now that there are practices going on in some of these remote villages or among the um, in the nomads encampments, which must have long historical roots. Um, and in some cases, they're quite legalistic. People are writing down um, texts. Um, and one of the things they're doing when they write down texts is to assert their autonomy. So, you know, as early as, or as late as the early 20th century, there were... Tibetan nomads who are making grand claims for their laws. We've got our laws and they're different from yours, different from the Dalai Lama, different from those in China, different from the neighboring tribes. You know, these are our laws. It's our independence. Um, We learn about our laws with our mother's milk, you know, claims for antiquity here. Um, So laws are sometimes sort of markers of independence Mm -hmm. as, as much as anything else. But there are also communities where they um, they do things without law. They almost deliberately don't write down laws, don't make village constitutions. And I think that in itself is a, is a sort of defensive mechanism. Because if you don't write things down, other people can't see it. They can't take it over and try to administer it themselves. Huh. It's almost like, you know, you say you say to the outside of the power holders, yes, 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 of course you'll do what we want. And then when they leave, they just do their own thing sort of quietly and anonymously. So those sorts of dynamics must have been carrying on for ages. Um, Back across the world to the European Middle Ages, where lots of kings would like to believe they could do what the Chinese emperor does, but almost always do do so unsuccessfully. Um, So we've got this very interesting, again, contest, um, uh, dynamic contest between center and periphery, not to be all... Yeah, uh, king, nobles, people. Could you could you in <laughs> could you summarize a thousand years of European yeah. legal history <laughs> in two minutes? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's you know, collapse of the Roman Empire, and then great fragmentation. But um, the Germanic kings, of whom there are now many in what's now Spain and France and Germany and Italy and and England keep making laws, and it's fairly obvious they've got the image of the Roman emperors in their mind. You know, this, this, the, the, grand, the grand emperors had their laws. And so forever after, European kings um, in, engage in lawmaking. Um, and to begin with, a lot of their legal texts in the early Middle Ages are um, pretty limited, not very coherent, difficult to see them ever being applied. Um, but as the, poli- the polities become more centralised in France, in England, um, in northern Italy, there's a bit more centralization of judges, courts, conflict resolution, a bit more deliberate lawmaking. And then at some point, of course, the scholars in Italy sort of rediscover Roman law, yeah. the corpus juris, which has always been forgotten about. Um 
And then it's partly an academic exercise to go through it and try and understand and interpret it. But at the same time, it becomes a practical thing. It, it inspires more lawmaking um, in the image of the Roman law. It's interesting. I, I've, I've spent a lot of unsuccessful time hours in the classroom trying to explain how what a big deal the rediscovery of the of, of the Justinian Code was, um, and it's funny because you know popularly um, uh, you, you might find a, a allusion to the rediscovery of Aristotle or something like that, mm-hmm. but um, could I mean it's the rediscovery of that of of that that corpus that leads to the creation of the university, of really the modern university. <laughs> I mean, because Bologna is a law school, uh, and mm. it's people are studying law. So the the the, it, the consequences of that rediscovery of something which has been lost are are immense. It's an immense intellectual moment in in Western Europe. Exactly, and it's it's right to call it an an intellectual moment as well. Yeah, I mean, it does have political consequences. Huge but the as first well. Thing that happens is that the scholars get hold of it and they develop their learning. They found these institutions and they're yeah. supported or at least tolerated, if not supported by the church. Um, and scholarship and legal learning then um, uh, become prestigious in themselves. And um, so, you know, and the scholars have, the, have their own status and their own influence. And before, on, and before long, you can have places like the University of Oxford where you can study law and actually get a job as a cleric, but as a lawyer at court, which is also sort of unprecedented for the previous 500 years or, or longer. Mm-hmm. So the, one of the really interesting things about England is that um, it the 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 Angevin kings from sort of twelfth century onwards developed their own the common law, and it's a very sort of pragmatic, um, uh, pra- pragmatic political move. They centralise their courts. They start um, the kings to move around the country so to to deliver a sort of unified justice. They centralise the courts and they develop law on the basis of what people need. And this is the aristocracy who are arguing about land and inheritance and that sort of thing. At the same time, in the, on the continent, um, in northern Italy, um, the Justinians, the Roman law is being rediscovered. And so this gets taught in the English universities at Oxford and Cambridge, while in practice, the judges are enacting the English common law. And so these things go side by side. And of course, there's some influence between the two. But really, scholastic law and practical law are quite separate, you know, in the same in the same country, in the same city of London. It's a bizarre, really. It is, and, it, but it's very, yeah. very conducive to intellectual development to, to do that because they're code switching, in effect. I mean, they're having to learn two different sort of programming languages simultaneously, and they're able to go mm-hmm. back and forth and then bring – we've had a podcast on this before. I have to put in the notes – I'll put in the show notes – where people are able then to, to sort of put the learning that they've got um, on the – this scholastic law, and they're able then to apply it to the common law. Mm, yeah. Of, yeah, of course, there was more influence between the two than than, than some people have, have said, but um, but yes, they were never formally formally joined. No. Um, so I, you have a fascinating chapter, one of my favorite ones, uh, on the problem of judgment. Um, and as I said to you, I mean, you're I guess you've been making Tibetan uh, English comparisons for some time, but it was certainly the first one I had ever read. So, if we could talk about the problem of judgment and using a sort of Tibetan English comparison, that would be that would be lovely. Mm-hmm. Well, 
So behind all this, there was a huge variety in laws and legal systems. So lots of the first chapters of the book are all about the very different ways in which laws developed and, and uses to which it's been put. So by the time I got to the end of the second part, which is sort of the end of the Middle Ages, there was very little that looked, you know, really similar until I got to this issue about oaths or ordeals, um, where the remarkably similar practices developed very widely throughout the world in ways that can't have been influenced um, one on the other. And at the root of it is is a common problem. How do you decide if somebody's guilty of a crime or not? Uh, you know, it's a very modern problem. When the evidence is thin, who do you believe if there's no um, sort of supporting evidence? And it, and and it, 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 it just takes us so deep into like all the fundamental philosophical questions too. I mean, we get so deep into epistemology, whether we like like it or not. I mean, it's 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 a very interesting way that it takes us into the heart of so many things, you know, simultaneously, but as you show, everywhere at the at, sort of at the same time and in, in many of the same ways. Exactly. And then there's a question of intention, because pretty well everywhere, people recognize that it's one thing to kill by accident, and it's one thing to kill carelessly, and it's another thing to kill by intending to kill. So that adds yet another layer of complexity, which pretty well everybody has to wrestle with. How do you prove intent? Um, and so the the solution that people have come up with everywhere is oath-taking, oath-taking and ordeals. And oath-taking, very simply, um, getting people to swear on some divine image or relic or just invoking the divine verbally that what they are saying is the truth or that what somebody else is saying is the truth or that what somebody else is um, claiming they have or haven't done is true. And... That takes us back to sacrality again and, and cosmology. Oh, absolutely. I and mean, this is where it's really, really deeply, <laughs> deeply, deeply involved in, in, in the law. Um, and so you see the same systems in, in, in Tibetan, in, in medieval England. So in Tibet, one of the earliest legal texts deal with accidents that happen on the hunting field. So this is where the aristocracy get together. They chase wild yaks. Um, accidents happen. And there are so often allegations about, oh, this was deliberate killing. Um, the, the different tribes were still rivals. And so, of course, people suspected foul play. So if somebody was accused of having intentionally killed or injured someone else, um, they had to get together 12 people to prove their claim. Um, and What's the same Tibet? with... In, in Tibet, That's yeah. Interesting, same number. <laughs> but, but, but there it is. Um, and um, so, so the question, you know, we, we just think, we might think, well, I mean, but surely it's just easy to gather your friends and they can say, oh, yes, 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 you know, he, he didn't intend, it was an accident, or yes, that person clearly intended it. But I think we underestimate how, how frightening um, and how seriously people took oath-taking. And almost exactly the same system in, um, in medieval England, um, what, what's called oaths of compurgation, um, to, to, and it becomes formalised by about the 12th century that to make a serious allegation of murder, you have to bring along compurgators to swear that you are telling the truth and that somebody really did um, intend to kill. 
the victim. And um, so that this continues for, for centuries. What about trials by combat? That's what we, you know, that's a, that's the good box office stuff or not, yeah, if you ask what yeah. we Scott. Trial, trial by combat are less are, are less common. They tend to be more Euro European and and linked with sort of um, uh, ideas about sort of honor and status. Um, and and I, as far as I'm aware, most people would hire somebody to mm-hmm. to fight them to to fight a duel with them. Um, but the other problem that arises then if, is if people are not oath worthy. So it's about social status here. So in most places, you have to be a certain social status to be able to swear an oath and to be relied upon. Um, And Tibetans make this quite clear um, that priests weren't allowed to swear because it was unsuitable for them. Um, People with other ritual, well, so when I say priests, of course, this is is, um, Buddhist monks in Tibet, People with particular ritual powers not allowed to swear because they might avoid the divine effects of perjuring themselves. So that would undermine the whole process of oath-taking. Women not allowed to swear because they were thought to be over-influenced by their husbands. Children because they were too young or the destitute who might do anything for you know for, for food and water. So they were fairly careful about who was allowed to swear. Um, and in England, too, there were ideas about social status, who mm-hmm. was allowed to swear or not. Um, and so the ordeal was developed um, as a way of testing the um, evidence of the people who were um, not allowed to swear. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we all know that the ideals people had to carry a hot iron and walk a certain number of steps. And then if it had healed up with a certain length of time, then they were thought to be innocent. And if it hadn't, they were guilty. So this is sort of asking gods to, to, to give a sign, a physical sign of, of guilt or innocence. And again, almost exactly the same sorts of processes with hot iron in Tibet and in medieval Europe. And again, the whole thing just surrounded by invocations of the divine and prayers and fasting, priests being involved. Um, In Europe until the Lateran Council of 1215 abolished it. Mm -hmm. The Pope says, no more of this. It's it's not suitable for priests to get involved in anymore. The uh, third part of your book is devoted to um, the creation of this that we call ordering the world, or basically how um, we might. I, I thought of the subtitles: how the laws replace the gods. Um, as we see that even the Lateran Council is sort of participating in this in a strange way, um, but this is the, the creation of this of this model, a model which you write combines law's disciplinary p- potential with its promise of justice and order. Um, what do you mean by that? Uh, well, so uh, one of the questions I'm really trying to, to grapple with in the third part of the book is how laws have come so, become so similar through all parts of the world. And of course, they're not exactly the same. But nevertheless, the world is divided into a nation state and each nation state has its own legal system. And almost every legal system today has got you know, criminal laws and civil laws and public laws and, and procedural laws and so on. And that and that similarity, it seems to me, reading the book, I guess, I've, but this really crystallized my thinking, is one of the most incredible political legal transformations of the last 500 years. I mean, an intellectual, did I say intellectual? I mean, it's all those things, social, it's all those things together. It's really quite odd. 
It's uh, it's Indeed. really it's actually it's strange. It's nice to realize that your moment you're living in is very weird, which is what history, <laughs> which which is what history is supposed to show us. You know, exactly. Western civilization is an odd thing. It's just <laughs> it's odd. Not, <laughs> exactly. It's not the sort of you know, the place you've been trying to get to all along. No one, who could have predicted that in 1500? No one would have predicted yeah. this. Yeah. yeah. Nevertheless, it's an extremely successful model. At least, mm-hmm. at least temporarily, it has managed to basically our world. Um, so, a lot of it's geopolitics. Obviously, it's the rise of Europe, the colonialism, industrialization, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and then the Western nations importing their laws firstly to North America, and then to almost all the rest of the world, and even parts of the world were never colonized, then looking to these Western models to develop their own laws, uh, for example, in Japan and China and, and, and so on. But it also strikes me that the modern legal systems very successfully combine a lot of these elements from the different original legal systems I was talking about in, in China, India and Mesopotamia. So they retain the casuistic form, Mm-hmm. Um, they promise justice, lots of emphasis on, on procedural rules, but there are um, substantial disciplinary elements, there's criminal laws, which are in the model of the Chinese legal systems. But laws are also ways in which governments, I think, make explicit how society ought to be, ought to be, ought to be how people ought to pave a moral vision for society. So, for example, we have laws about hate speech, um, about discrimination, um, about about libel. Um, And those are the sorts of ways in which they make moral statements about how people ought to behave. Um, so when there was a there was um uh, well, when hate speech laws were first introduced in the UK several years ago, they were pretty ineffective. Nobody thought they were actually going to be able to use them very much. But then, so why did the government make them? Well, it felt it, hate speech was a problem, and it needed to be seen to be doing something. It was sort of making a statement, a moral statement about this is not acceptable behaviour. Um, so it seems to me that in our moral and our legal systems now, we combine these different elements. There are lots of very sort of useful laws for regulating society, which people can use to seek justice. There are all the criminal laws, the disciplinary laws, as China developed. And there are moral statements, um, the enactment of human rights as well, which, which make statements about um, sort of duty, moral duty. So earlier in the book, you had described the um, creation of various systems of religious law, um, Hindu, Buddhist, uh, Jewish, Islamic, Christian. And one of the interesting and kind of extraordinary facts about the modern world is, um, I mean, you can take a course in Roman Catholic canon law, um, but even canon law has a very limited applicability in the life of the church itself. Um, and yet, the, the the strange fact, in many ways, is the survival of Islamic law. When mm. when others are like Roman Catholic canon law were crippled or or even mortally hurt, um, it's a very interesting thing. Exactly. I mean, Islamic law and also Jewish law, mm-hmm. and not so widespread, but 
both those two religious-based systems are still very much alive in the modern world, whereas the Chinese, the traditional Chinese law, Hindu laws pretty well disappeared as, along with a lot of local laws. Um, so that's partly to do with politics, you know, colonialism in India, um, uh, where um, common law-style courts were introduced and basically took over. Hindu, other religious laws were sort of reduced to matters of personal status. Um, in, China, in China, it was really to do with the disintegration of the Qing Empire. They tried to modernize the legal system. Then when it collapsed in the 20th century, um, um, nobody tried to revive after the nationalists, and certainly not Mao didn't try to revive uh, traditional Chinese laws. But Islamic and Jewish laws are sort of hung on in there, largely, I think, because of the the sort of independent authority and power of the religious legal specialists, going back to what we were discussing earlier on, they have a sort of a, an authority which is independent of the caliphs, the sultans, now the modern governments. So people still go to their religious legal experts for, for legal advice. Um, and so in practice, most Islamic states have maintained or developed state systems of law, which are very modern, very Western. Even if they claim to be based on the Sharia and they enact certain Islamic principles, really the national legal systems, a modern, modern state legal system. But most of them um, have set up separate Sharia courts to deal with family issues. Um, and so the religious legal scholars still have a lot of power and influence. And it's, so it's partly that separation between between priest and king, between religion and state, uh, very important. Just as we are starting to close up here, I, I'm really there's a fascinating you have a fascinating discussion of places where uh, law and legalism have not been co opted by the modern state. Um, just today, I heard uh, someone comment, and I, I wish I'd have to find the reference for the show notes, about a study of American prison gangs where uh, they find it useful to write constitutions and sets of rules. Yeah, I love to have that reference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's a, sort of a, a classic a way of finding these places outside the state, but where nonetheless some sort of legal juridical system has to be mm -hmm. enacted or created. Mm -mm. Well, I go back to my Tibetan examples as well. These remote villages, which very much turn their backs on the state, do their own thing, or the tribes who maintain their own laws. Um, these sorts of dynamics are reproduced all over the place. And interestingly, sometimes in the modern commercial world as well. One mm -hmm. of my favorite examples come from the New York Diamond Dealers Club, yeah. which has a very explicit set of its own internal rules and regulations and arbitration procedures. Um, I'm not sure how much has changed in recent years, but certainly only about 20 years ago, there was a very deliberately separate set of rules, regulations and procedures. And the diamond dealers were very much frowned upon if they went to the state courts. So they're right at the centre of you know, all the powerful modern democracies is this alternative legal system. Yeah. And what were, the, what were their punishments? Oh, ostracism is a big punishment there. You the, know, the if you want to remember the stuff, you lost everything. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, 
So the question is, um, if you don't have ostracism or if you don't have the disciplinary authority of state, uh, can law and legalism retain power? Um, you seem to say yes. I'm a little bit more doubtful. Um, you know, if uh, basically, say, for example, the Helsinki, uh, the Helsinki, the the the, the, the meeting on human rights in the mid-70s, which turned out to be very, very influential in ways that people didn't realize on the behavior of the Soviet Union and Soviet bloc powers. Um, mm. That was still had a lot to do with ostracism um, uh, and people being more susceptible to ostracism uh, than we realized in, say, 1983. Um, the question is, if you've got um, powers which uh, are immune to ostracism, if such a thing is possible, do law and legalism still have power of their own? Well, it's a question of what sort of power, I think, um, and how how effective it is. Um, I mean, human rights is a, it, it is a very good example. Nobody wants to deny human rights or say, we don't care about human rights. Um, even if they try to... Um, uh, do do what they want and what other people disapprove of. So at the beginning of the you know the Iraq War, for example, all the Western powers made strenuous efforts to justify legally what they were doing. They're, so at least rhetorically, they felt the need to claim that they were acting in accordance with international law. China um, won't just say it doesn't care about human rights, but it recognises appropriate human rights for China itself. It makes arguments about you know, sovereignty and uh, threats to national security. So law is, is something which almost all power holders feel they need to invoke. They need to justify what they do. To come back to the discussion we had right at the very beginning, so even if nobody can enforce a law, at least there's some rhetorical power to it. Mm-hmm. Can, it may not be more than that, but that's something. Is that um, so? That we are back to where we where we began. I mean, it, so this is at the moment where law seems to be divorced from cosmology, as it were. And I, I'm always. I, it, it's like a moment in a, a bad Western where the young lieutenant says to the grizzled sergeant, you know, it's, it's very quiet. You know, it's, and the sergeant says, too damn quiet. Um, it, mm. It's one of those moments where you begin to wonder if, if this is not the moment where cosmology comes back with a bang. Can law and cosmology be long divorced? Can law do without cosmology? I suppose it depends how widely we draw the concept of cosmology. I mean, I think human rights is the is the sort of modern equivalent of the cosmology. It's a sense of maybe it's not cosmological, but there's a sense of something ultimate and undeniable. It's a statement of faith, though, in 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 what you believe human nature to be. It's not something that can necessarily be proven in a lab. It's not it's not materialistic in, in, at all. Oh, absolutely. I mean, exactly. Yeah. It has to be a matter of a matter of belief, a matter of right and wrong. Mm-hmm. You can hardly imagine people who don't care about what's right and what's wrong, even if they have different ideas about right and wrong. Uh, at the beginning, I just want to talk about the the book. At the beginning of when, before we started recording, I think you said that this is something that anthropologists can do for history: is make. Let me say, I'll say the, I'll say the adjective, crazy comparisons um, between <laughs> between very different places or even very di- different times. Um, 
how the world did you create this 4,000 year survey using all these comparisons? I mean, did you have a wall covered with post-its and, and uh, bits of, it's like a speak police procedural, bits of yarn connecting things like, a, uh, how, how did this, how did this come about? I mean, well, it did start off with with sort of metaphorically a whole jumble of post-it notes, <laughs> not many connections between them. Um, so, and I suppose originally I w- it came out of comparative work I'd do, been doing with other historians and anthropologists and just seeing this as a whole set of really interesting stories about the world and thinking, well, I, I, I want to make this come alive for, for, for the general public. But then thinking, no, but I've got to have an argument. There's got to be some thread which holds everything together. So I just went back and back and back in time. I thought I've got to get back to, I've got to understand the really major legal systems. And and it ended up being the chronology, that sort of old story that I wanted to tell, starting with the inventors of law, those who borrowed and copied and trying to trace out the ways in which laws had different influences um, around the world. So it's a sort of it's a sort of tale of invention, expansion, borrowing, multiplication, and then this sort of sort of contraction into this form that we, as we were just saying, now dominates the whole world. Um, well, parts of it, well, a large, a large part of it. I mean, this is as, as, as you say, again, in the, in the conclusion, China is always the exception. So this mm. is, that's the sort of, this is the next, in many ways, this is at the heart of the current, maybe at the heart of the 21st century is, um, is the direction of this, uh, of the last 500 years of legal history. It- Exactly. So the Chinese legal system is very similar to the ones we have at the moment, but the whole dynamics of the rule of law are very, very different there. So my guest today has been Fernanda Piri. She's the author of The Rule of Laws, A 4,000-Year Quest to Order the World. Fernanda, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. It's been a pleasure. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.